look forward to next week. Who are, uh, I learned a long time ago not to judge competitions. That's a good way to get in trouble. And so uh, you make a panel of judges and then you keep them anonymous. That way, uh, you know, uh, no one can get blamed. Amen. All right, Hebrews 9. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. And we will read responsively from 22 down through verse number 27. We'll read the odd verses out loud uh, as a group. I will read the even, ver- or the even verses alone, and you'll follow along there in your Bible. I'll begin in verse 22. The Bible says there, "...and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission." Together, verse 23, "...it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself." Now it appears in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And we're going to continue on this, uh, uh, this uh, series of Back to the Basics. And this week we'll look at the topic of blood atonement, every sin washed away. Let's pray. Lord, I ask today as we look at uh, a very vital and important truth to our Christian faith, that you'd help us to understand it. And Lord, if there is someone here today that has not had their sins atoned, has not had the sin washed off their eternal account, may that day be today. For those of us here that are saved, help us to understand why our sins were washed away and what that has prepared us to to be and to do. Help us this morning, Lord, to give us a clarity of mind and an understanding heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. February is celebrated as the month of love, the month of love, Cupid's arrows, right? I understand the um, traditions go back into some things that are probably not too healthy, uh, paganistic in nature, but I got to say that God created love and I'm all for celebrating love the way God created it, amen? Um, Sometime back, um, the Luzernes were pinching pennies and could not afford to go and uh, uh, pastor could not afford to take his wife out for a dinner. This is years ago before I was your pastor. And so my wife began a tradition in our home and we uh, now hold to this tradition. I think some of you ladies maybe heard about this at the ladies activity, but indulge me for a minute here. When I get home on uh, thank, or rather on Valentine's Day, and this just happened this past Wednesday, I get home from work, I'm told what time reservations are. And so I show up at the house when I'm told to. That's a good practice to live by, men. Um, but I show up at the time I'm told to. I, I come walking in the door, and I am greeted by my 8-year-old son and my 7-year-old daughter. They are dressed up like a waiter and a waitress. And um, we are. I am walked in. Uh, my wife meets me there at the door, and I'm walked uh, to the table, and it is all set up like a candlelight meal. And we're seated there, and then every year we have a different restaurant that our house has turned into. Uh, two years ago, it was called Lomo Mundo, um, which is um, uh, named after my favorite uh, 
Peruvian dish. And uh, this year I was brought to the restaurant Spaghetti Love. Spaghetti Love. I felt like the lady in the tramp and I felt like the tramp. Um, so we were sat down and my kids make up menus and uh, they bring them in and uh, the options are limited. So uh, the appetizer, you don't get really much of a pick. The appetizer was bread and salad and then uh, the entree was spaghetti and then uh, there was a dessert prepared. My wife takes the time to make all of that up and then uh, stow it in a spot where the kids can go into the kitchen and get it and bring it to us. And uh, they treat us like royalty on that day. Uh, and so uh, it came time for dessert and they came in and asked us if we needed anything. And my, my wife said, well, I think we're ready to order dessert. And next thing I know, she's got her dessert in front of her and I, I didn't get my dessert. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm, I'm starting to get a little impatient and I'm getting ready to, to chew out the manager. And um, uh, finally, my, my waiter appears, but he doesn't have a dessert. Instead, he has a piece of paper, and that paper is the bill. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. You can't give me a bill till I have my dessert. And so he took the bill back, and uh, next thing I know, the bill got raised. And I looked down at the total, and it says, uh, uh, has all the items listed, and it said uh, the, the total bill is $1,000. And I said, yikes. And uh, he, uh, he went in the kitchen, and he came back a few minutes later, and him and his sister connived, and he came back and said, he said, I'll tell you what, sir, I'll make a deal with you. I will take your bill away if you will allow me to play games on your cell phone for a day straight. <laughs> I said, you are one tough cookie. Um, I love the love that the Lejeune family has and shares. Now, we're not, we're not a perfect family. We, we squabble like every other family does, and we have our ups and downs and our bumps and bruises along the way, but we love each other. We love each other. And all month long, um, in church, we've been looking at not the love of an earthly family, but the love of a heavenly family. And that's God's love to us. God's love to you. It's one thing to say, for God so loved the world. And I love that verse. But I think I like the verse uh, in Romans 5.8 that says, Christ died for us. You see how it gets more personal. God so loved the world. Christ died for us. But then Galatians says, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see how Paul makes it personal. We start with this broad love that fits all of mankind and then specifically to the church at Rome and those who read the book of Romans. But then specifically Paul says, God loves me. My, my, I think the verse maybe that, uh, uh, that, that explains God's love for us the most is uh, John fifteen thirteen, where he says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. Now, I want you to imagine that there is somebody who has hurt you deeply, and they're on trial to, 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 to face a death sentence. And you walk in the courtroom with your little boy and you say, I'm going to allow my boy to die for the man who hurt my family. He's going to go on death row for him and take his place. You'd say no sane, no logical person would do that. 
And I would say to you that you're right, I would not do that, and you most likely would not do that. But that's exactly what God did. He looked down at us when we had injured Him with our sins, and He sent His Son to death row to die on the cross and to pay the price for our sin. How much love does Jesus have for you? Enough to kill His Son in your place. Now, we see the cross and we've become inoculated to it. It's jewelry, it hangs on the wall, it's, 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 it's fashionable. But my friend, that cross was not a pretty sight. The cross was a very brutal sight. All month long, we've been talking about God's love for us on Sunday mornings. We started out the first Sunday of this month talking about reconciliation. That's a big word and a complicated sounding word, but we know it's a financial term. You have a debt that's reconciled, that debt has been paid. We talked about how that you can have your eternal sin debt reconciled with God when you mix His spirit of forgiveness with your heart of repentance. You turn uh, from a, a unbelief or a belief that you can get to heaven yourself and you turn from that sin and you believe in Jesus and what He did on the cross and that forgiveness mixed with your repentance equals a debt, sin debt that's been forgiven and a home promised in heaven. Last week we talked about justification. Justification. And we talked about how that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that God, the judge, could justify his decision in forgiving the debt and letting us into heaven. Jesus, really, uh, justification comes down to the word, uh, 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 comes down to the word uh, uh, sacrifice or rather substitution. Jesus substituted in your place. He died for you so that God could remove his wrath off of you and instead place his grace on you and allow you a home in heaven. We learned that Job was not justified uh, by his righteousness. Job was justified by his faith. We looked at uh, uh, Romans 4 where the Bible says that Abraham was not justified by the good works of his life. Rather, Abraham was justified by faith. By faith. And we talked about how that you are not going to get in heaven by living a good life. If you could get into heaven by living a good life, or that rather that was a requirement, then how in the world did God let the thief into heaven who hung next to him on the cross? He had no good works to offer, but you know what he did have was faith. And he looked over at Jesus and he said, Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That thief, that malefactor, that evil man who died uh, a, a hideous death for the very crimes of his life is in heaven because of his faith. And that's the only way anybody gets into heaven. Now, in Jesus' death, he shed his blood. He shed his blood. And this question has been batted around uh, in churches for a long, long time. And here's the question. Did Jesus need to shed his blood for our sins to be atoned? Did Jesus need to do that? By the way, that word atone, here's what it means. And I encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes. On the back of your bulletin, there's a place to do that if you don't have another method there. The word atone means this. It means to cover, to purge, to reconcile. Here's maybe my favorite definition. Cover over with pitch. Cover over with pitch. Here's a little Bible nugget for you that enjoy studying the Bible. 
The pitch that covered Noah's ark was a picture of the blood of Jesus covering our souls. Isn't that neat? You can study that later in more depth on your own. Um, as a society, we have become pretty desensitized to the sight of blood. You can turn on the TV and uh, you can watch anything and you'll see blood. Now, I work very hard to shelter my children away from seeing violence on TV. I don't want them to have nightmares based on what they see. Last night, my son and I were watching the three-point competition at the NBA All-Star Weekend, and uh, I, I will turn the commercials off because you can't even hardly watch commercials anymore. But uh, uh, it looked like as though the three-point competition was back on, and then they quickly cut to a commercial break, and within the first three seconds of that commercial break, there was somebody being shot and blood spraying out of a body. Within three seconds. And I'm left scratching my head going, is this supposed to be a family-friendly show? Is this supposed to be... How, how is this happening? The things they put on just the commercials are filthy. But we live in a day and time where people are very desensitized to the sight of blood. You, um, a lot of crime shows on TV. Um, there's a lot of video games that portray bloodshed. And to live in 2018 uh, and, and to exist in this world, you cannot help but see a lot of blood. We're a lot more... Uh, we're, we're a lot more exposed to violent blood than we were as a society or as the people say 50 or 100 years ago. Um, blood, though, it is a frightening thing. The sight of blood, especially violent blood, is a frightening thing. You watch a child cry at the sight of his own blood and you get an idea of just how scary it is. You see a, a child who's cut his finger. And blood's beginning to run. And listen, as an adult, I'll cut my finger. And uh, I was up cleaning my gutters out the other day. And I got my finger down in there. And that metal sliced to me right there on my pinky. And uh, I was bleeding pretty profusely. But I had like four feet left of gutter to do for the whole house. I wasn't going to stop and, and go down the ladder and come back up. So I just let it bleed. And, and it clotted itself and sealed itself up. But... To be honest, it didn't really hurt me that bad. But had I been a child and seen the blood, I would have been like, ah, ah, ah. You know what I mean? That's how kids are. I got that out early in the sermon before you fell asleep. You ought to be thankful for that. All right. You fall asleep, it might pull it back out. Be careful. Um, blood is a scary thing. And children show us that. Um, to some, the sight of blood is offensive. It's offensive. My wife um, does not like the sight of blood. Cannot stand it. When um, uh, I had my gallbladder taken out three or four years ago, and I was being rolled out of surgery, and I guess there was some galls on me or whatever, and uh, it was a laparoscopic thing, so there wasn't even that much blood. But she just about passed out. And the, the, the doctor's like, or nurse's like, ma'am, can I get you a chair? And so we'll go into a hospital to make a visit. And when we come out, she's like, oh, I, I don't like this place. It just brings back uh, uh, bad memories of blood. Uh, how many of you here are not very good at getting your blood drawn? Can I see your hand? You're not very good at getting your blood drawn? 
the side of needles, getting jabbed. How many of you here have to get jabbed like 17 times so they finally, because you just don't have good veins, all right? That's no fun. I have good veins. I'm very thankful for that. Uh, thank you, Lord, for giving me good veins. But blood is no fun to look at. It's, it, it is offensive to some. And uh, uh, here's what I want to uh, point I want to make early in the sermon is that many, many Protestant churches have removed the, the very songs that we sung as part of our services this morning. You can't find songs like Are You Washed in the Blood in most Protestant hymn books. You can't find uh, uh, the, the other songs that we sing. The last one we sung about, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank here. But anyway, all the songs about the blood, we've got a lot of them in our hymnal. They are absent and missing. Why? Because the thought of Jesus shedding his blood is offensive. And they will say, it is the death of Jesus that saves us. His blood plays no factor. And to that I say, that is heresy. Absolute heresy. Don't let Satan wiggle the blood out of your faith. Blood is a very powerful thing. Blood provides life. Take your Bibles uh, over to Leviticus 17. Hold your place in, in uh, Hebrews 9. Turn to Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. Let me show you something here about blood. And I'm going to help define my position of when life begins based on this verse uh, for you there. Leviticus 17, verse number 11. The Bible says there, it says, I'm going to begin reading, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Now this was prophetic. This verse was prophetic about the Lamb of God, Jesus, dying on the cross and shedding His blood. I'll prove that to you here later on in the sermon. But... Uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that blood provides life, provides life. You drain the blood out of someone that can't live. You all know how George Washington died, right? They tried to take all the bad blood out of him. It killed him. It just shows you how far medicine's come since then. Uh, but blood provides life. Pastor, when does life begin? Life begins when there is blood flow in the womb of a, of, of a mother, uh, in the womb of a mother. Um, when there is, and that, by the way, that starts at a very, 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 very early pro, uh, process. You can't have more than a couple of cells uh, uh, there in reproducing without blood flow to help that process. So uh, uh, life begins very early in the process. Why? Because life equals blood. Life equals blood. Uh, not only does blood provide life, but uh, blood has a voice. Blood has a voice. Cain killed his brother Abel. By the way, turn over to Genesis chapter 4. Uh, Cain killed his brother Abel. Can you imagine how terrified Cain must have been? He had never seen a human die. No one had ever seen a human die. Cain wasn't desensitized to death the way you and I are. Uh, I, I read a stat somewhere along the line that said the average uh, person on TV sees it's something like 8,000 people die on uh, uh, every 10 years or something. It's, it's some high, high number. But Cain had never seen CSI, NCIS. Cain had never watched those shows. He didn't know anything about that. Um, Cain did not know that... It, I don't know that Cain even knew that a human could die. Only in theory, no one had ever died before. Can you imagine how terrified he must have been to watch his brother's life blood flow like a crimson river out of his head? And into the ground? 
I have taken life, you must have thought. I have shed innocent blood. The, the blood of Abel cried out to God. What did it say? Well, maybe it said this. Will you allow the death of one of your children to go unpunished? Will you stand idly by and ignore the killing of your creation? Will you allow the killing of this, cre- this creation that was made in your image and in your likeness? Abel's blood cried. It said, the body that I once flowed through has been struck down and I have been forced to depart into the soil of the earth. It cried out to its creator, will you do nothing? Will you allow this evil to go unpunished? Furthermore, his blood cried, Father God, I have died in vain. Have I died in vain? I was struck down by a sinner. Shall this sinner go unpunished? I was struck by the guilty. Shall the guilty be struck as well? God heard the crying out of Abel's blood and he stepped in and punished murderers. Came. Look at Genesis chapter 4 verse 10. The Bible says, And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy, of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Now, this voice of blood cannot be heard by human ears, but it is absolutely 100% heard in heaven. God hears the shedding of innocent blood. If you know someone who has been murdered, who has been killed, and their blood was shed, God heard, hears the voice of their blood. Now, all throughout Scripture, you find the shedding of animal blood for the atoning or the forgiveness of sin. Now, while we may not want to mentally dwell on violent bloodshed, it is necessary that we understand this vital truth to our salvation. Listen to what 1 John 1, 7 says. It says, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. As we dive a little deeper into our understanding of the science of salvation, let's work to understand the importance of the blood that our Savior shed on the cross. Let's work to understand how that it can wash away our sins. This morning I propose that the blood of Jesus can act as the soap for your soul. The soap for your soul. Let, let's work to understand the importance of the blood that our Savior shed on the cross. Let's work to understand how it can wash our sins away. We're going to look at five, five uh, uh, thoughts this morning, five truths out of Hebrews that will help us to understand the blood's atonement. If you're taking notes this morning, first note, number one, the penalty for Adam's sin. The penalty for Adam's sin. You're in Genesis 4, look up at verse number 1 there. Genesis chapter 4, look at verse number 1. We're going to see here what the penalty was, the the very first penalty uh, for Adam's sin. It says there, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare uh, his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. We see there he was a shepherd. But Cain was a tiller of the ground, or a farmer. Verse 3, in, in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. By the way, Cain bringing the fruit of the ground is a symbol of works salvation. It is a picture of those who believe they get into heaven based on bringing what the good fruit of their own flesh 
to the Lord and saying, look at the good that I have done. Look at verse 4. And Abel, he also brought the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. So Abel brings a, a lamb. And this lamb, the firstling of the flock, this lamb is not a picture of the work of Abel's hand, but rather a picture of the creation of God, a picture of the future lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. So uh, 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 Abel brings a sacrifice of faith. Uh, Cain brings a sacrifice of Works. Now look at verse 5. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So what am I trying to get here about the penalty for Adam's sin? The penalty was that God had instructed them that they were to shed the blood of an innocent lamb because of their sin. Bloodshed goes all the way back to the very first family where they had to take a little lamb and they had to lay it on the altar. By the way, uh, uh, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they realized they were naked. They had no clothes on. So in their shame of their nakedness, they went and they gathered a bunch of fig leaves and they sewed them together and they made themselves a covering, but not a very good covering at that. And God said, listen, I, I believe in modesty and you're not modest. And so he went and he killed a lamb. And so God killed a lamb. He skinned the lamb and he created Adam and Eve clothing to wear out of the skin of the lamb. Uh, the very first penalty for Adam's sin was that an innocent lamb had to die and his blood had to be shed. Now, obviously, there's a lot more consequences to Adam's sin than that. You sin by your very nature because Adam is a sinner, and Adam has passed down to you and I the very desire to sin. You cannot help but sin. To breathe air in and out of your lungs is to live a life with a sin engine inside of you that causes you to sin. Listen, the blood of Jesus can wash away the sins off your eternal account, and I pray that it has, and if it hasn't, I pray that happens today. But if you are here and your eternal account has been settled with God, you still sin at times. We don't believe in sinless perfection here. We don't believe that anyone ever gets to a place where they're totally sinless. Now, you ought to sin less every day, but nobody ever achieves a point of sinless perfection. So what was the penalty for Adam's sin? Well, the very first penalty was that an innocent lamb, an innocent animal, had to die and shed his blood uh, uh, because of that sin. Notice number two, the process of Old Testament bloodshed. The process of Old Testament bloodshed. Now, uh, uh, you're going to want to turn back over to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be looking at that in just a moment here. In the book of Leviticus, by the way, prior to the book of Leviticus, from, from Adam all the way to, to Moses, the type of offering that Abel, Abel offered was the offering that was offered. A lamb was brought, firstling in the flock, uh, without spot or blemish. It was laid upon the altar, the blood was shed, and that would, that would represent their faith that they had in their heart. We'll get into the more technicalities of what it did for them specifically here in a moment. But uh, God would come along with Moses and have Moses write out the Levitical law. And in that Levitical law, God would get much more detailed with not just this generic sacrifice of a lamb, but specific types of sacrifices. And each one of these sacrifices were for different reasons. And we covered these in a series back, I believe, in 2016 or early 17. And, uh, the five sacrifices were this, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the meat offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And you find other types of offerings in the book of Leviticus, but 
most of those fit inside or are subcategories of one of these five. Sin, trespass, meat or meal, burnt and peace offering. And uh, now, there was one trespass offering that was extra special. Many trespass offerings would happen during the year, but there was one that was extra special. Now, I know I'm getting technical on you. Don't let me lose you. Please pay attention on purpose. Look down at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 9. The Bible says, But into the second went the high priest alone. Chapter 9, verse 7 of Hebrews. But into the second went the high priest alone uh, once every year, not without blood, or rather with blood, uh, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. So on top of all of the trespass offerings that were offered regularly for the known sin of the people, once a year, once a year, the priest would go into uh, uh, the Holy of Holies which was a place only the high priest was allowed. Inside of the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant uh, called, in, in this sense, the mercy seat. And he would take a bowl of blood, he would dip his fingers down in it, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and God would accept that, and he would atone, he would forgive the people of their sins, both the priest personally and the people corporately for another year. Once a year that was done, and God was very specific on when that was to be done. Listen as I read for you Leviticus 16, verse 29 and 30. Listen carefully. It says, And this shall be a statute for uh, forever unto you, that in the seventh month, or on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be uh, uh, one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. So they're to take one day a year, the, the, the tenth day of the seventh month, they're to do nothing except afflict their souls. No work, nothing. It doesn't matter if they're uh, of that country or not, of, uh, if they're an Israelite or not, or a sojourner there with them. They're to do nothing. And then verse 30, here's what's to be done. For on that day, the priest shall make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So once a year, the high priest took the blood of a lamb, an innocent lamb, placed it in a bowl, went into the holy place, the holy of holies, and would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Uh, and, and God uh, would, would accept that as a, uh, as a purging of sins for one more year. The process brought about God's forgiveness for that nation and for each individual within the nation. So we see the penalty of Adam's sin, number one. Number two, the process of Old Testament bloodshed. Now, uh, number three, let's look at this. The purpose of Old Testament bloodshed. The purpose of Old Testament bloodshed. Are you in Hebrews chapter 9? Look at verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies, and here's what it does, to the purifying of the flesh. The purifying of the flesh. So, what did Old Testament bloodshed accomplish? Did it wash away their sins? Their eternal sin? No. It did not. We'll talk about how that happens in a minute. What did it do? Let me give you an A and a B. Letter A, notice that it purified the flesh. It purified the flesh. Um, the New Testament... Equivalent, equivalent to this would be getting on your knees and having a confession time in prayer. All right. The Old Testament, you had your flesh cleansed uh, uh, figuratively by this day of atonement, this sacrifice. The atonement that was offered by the sprinkling of animal blood on the altar did not provide salvation for their eternal souls. 
Rather, it provided purification of their outward sinful flesh. You ask, how did they get saved? How did someone alive during Moses' era or prior to Jesus dying on the cross, how did they get their account cleared with God? The same way you do. They looked ahead to a day that a Messiah would come and would die and become this lamb. You see, this lamb was nothing more than a symbol of the lamb of God that would one day die and shed his blood, not to purify, sanctify the outward flesh, but to purify and sanctify the inward soul. A good example I'll use is that uh, these sacrifices were ordinances. All right. Over here, we have baptistry water. All right. This um, this water is very warm today. You guys getting baptized today. You you're you're lucky. Sometimes it's not warm. Uh, Sometimes the heater doesn't work, but it's working well. It's going to be good Uh, tonight during our service. There will be uh, 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 bread, unleavened bread and unfermented grape juice up here. We call these ordinances. All right. What does the Lord's Supper time do? It points back to the cross. You don't eat the, 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 the bread and drink the juice and make it become the body of God inside of you. This is a symbol of what that was. All right. Um, when these folks get baptized in a little bit, just a really quick explanation, uh, they'll stand in the water. That picture is the cross of Jesus. They'll be baptized. They'll go under the water. That picture is the burial of Jesus. They'll come out of the water. That picture is the resurrection of Jesus. Can I tell you something? There's nothing holy about this water. I got a, I got a uh, swimming pool in my backyard. It's frozen over right now. But the water in that pool is just as holy as the water in that pool. There's no power in that water. It doesn't wash away any sins. But you know what it does? It points back to that guy right there. You know what the Old Testament sacrifices did? They pointed forward to that guy right there. That's all it did. Now, beyond that, it purified the flesh. By the way, before we take the Lord's Supper elements tonight, you're supposed to make sure your sins are confessed. It kind of has the same effect. You with me here? But letter B, we see that it pointed to the future. Pointed to the future. What was the process of sacrifice? You, uh, you would go to your flock... Of, of sheep. There were, most of them were farmers back then. And uh, either you would get one of your own or you'd buy a sheep off another farmer. You would uh, take him and set him aside and you would observe him for a time to make sure that he was, uh, uh, he was not sickly. He was not blemished or hurt in some way. No broken legs, no, no bruises on him. And when the time was right, you would take that lamb or that goat or that ox, whatever the animal was, after a time of observation, and you would walk him to either the temple or the tabernacle. We'll use the tabernacle. Outside the tabernacle, which is this giant tent, there was this courtyard that was assembled, all right? So giant fence around the tabernacle. And at the entrance of the tabernacle, there was a priest standing there. And his duty was to take your animal and to pick him up if he was small enough or if he was too, too big for that, he'd get down and walk around and look around him. And he would observe that animal and he was quality control. He would look at him. He'd make sure that nothing was wrong with that. Do you know that happened to Jesus? Jesus stood not outside of the courtyard, but he stood in Pilate's hall and Pilate checked him. You know what Pilate said? I find no fault in him. What did the picturing, what did the checking of that animal do? It it showed us Jesus being examined, not by a priest, but by Pilate. 
After that, that lamb was led in to the courtyard there. And there was a brazen altar, an altar covered in brass with four horns. And they would take that animal and they would lay him up and they would tie the animal down, just like Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was affixed to the cross the same way that animal was affixed to that altar. They would then kill that lamb or that goat or that ox and the, they would take the blood and they would allow it to run over the side of the altar. Sometimes they would catch some of that blood in a bowl so they could use it to purify the other parts of the tabernacle. And you see, uh, uh, that just like Jesus would one day hang on a cross and that life-giving uh, a crimson flow would come from His body. Let me help you understand what Jesus, what God did in instructing Moses about the sacrifices. He looked ahead in time and saw his son hanging on a cross. Then he came back to Moses and he said, I want you to follow this detail in, this detail in, this detail, because all of these details carry great significance and they point to my son who will one day come and shed his blood for the atoning of the soul, not just the atoning of the flesh. What was the purpose of Old Testament bloodshed? Well, it purified the flesh. It pointed to the future. Uh, Number four, notice this, the power of Christ's blood. The power of Christ's blood. Look back at Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 13. It says, Therefore, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies the purifying of the flesh. Look at verse 14. See the contrast here. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, there's that without spot or blemish, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I love the language of verse 14. How much more? How much more? We saw how the blood of animals purified the flesh, but how about the blood of Jesus? By the way, you may wonder why we don't sacrifice animals anymore like they did in the Old Testament. The answer is because Jesus was the final sacrifice. Jesus completed that process. We don't need to sacrifice these animals anymore because all of those animals pointed to the day and time Jesus would die. And when Jesus hung on the cross, God took the veil of the temple where the Holy of Holies was and He reached down and He grabbed it from above and He tore that sucker in half. You know what He's saying? We don't need more blood sprinkled on a on a uh, on an ark of covenant on a mercy seat anymore because uh, the Lamb of God has died and He has shed His blood for His people. What does the power of Christ's blood do? Well, in contrast to Old Testament bloodshed, uh, we see letter A. It doesn't just purify the flesh. More importantly, it letter A purifies the soul. Purifies the soul. Notice there, it says His blood in verse fourteen. Purges the conscience. Purge the conscience. You may have stumbled into our church today not sure what to expect. Um, You probably didn't expect to hear a sermon like this. You might think that talk about blood is cultish, as some would label it. But I don't think it's any more cultish than a doctor talking about it in in a laboratory. You see, because the eternal blood of Jesus is what it takes to wash away the sins of your soul. You know, I, I'm impressed how a child can, can seem to understand this concept oftentimes better than some adults can. I'll talk to a child and I'll say, uh, 
that you have fallen into sin and your heart is dirty with sin. And they, oh, I understand that. I say, you ever fallen in a mud hole? Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, I have. And how would mom feel if you took that dirty shirt, that muddy shirt, and shoved it in your clean shirt drawer? Oh, man. Mom would not be happy about that. Do you know God can't let your dirty, sinful heart into His clean, perfect heaven? Just like that dirty shirt doesn't belong in the clean shirt drawer, your filthy, sinful heart doesn't belong in heaven. You say, but pastor, I've done a lot of good works. Your good works cannot take away the sin off of your heart. You see, a dirty heart, a dirty shirt must be cleaned before it can be placed in that drawer. And it is cleaned not just in a washing machine, it is cleaned with soap. You place a dirty shirt in a washing machine and you turn that thing on. You don't put any soap in there. I've made that mistake before. I forget to put the soap in. Uh, and you, you open it up and the clothes stink just as bad as they did when they went in. They're just wet. They're, they're, they're still just as dirty. They're just wet. I'll say to a child, I'll say, how do you get the sin off of your heart? And they look at me really puzzled. And I'll say, I have an idea. What if we get you in a bathtub? We give you a bar of soap and you scrub your chest really hard. Will that somehow penetrate through your chest and get down into your heart and wash all the sins off? And they look at me and go, no. I'll say, what if your mom washes you? Will that do it? No. Your mom has no access to your heart, does she? No. I say, aha, I got it. What if we put some liquid dawn in your mouth and you swallow that bad boy? That runs down your throat. And they laugh and they say, no. I say, who is the only person in the universe that has the power to wash your soul, wash your heart? A big smile will appear on their face and they'll say, God, God. Then I explain to them that the soap that God uses to take the sin off of your soul, to purge you from your sin, that soap is the blood of Jesus Christ. What does the blood of Jesus do? It purges your conscience. It cleanses your soul. Letter B, we see here that it prepares for service. Look back at verse 14. Look at the end of the verse. It says, purge your conscience. Look at here. And this is for all the Christians here today. From dead works to serve the living God. Why did God... Wash the sins off your heart. You're here today. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's taken away your sin. Your account's been cleared with God. As we talked about in court terms last week, your case has been dismissed two weeks ago. Your uh, sin debt has been canceled and forgiven. Uh, in terms of today, you, you, the sins that you have committed have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You've been white as snow, the Bible says. And now you have this heart that's cleansed, this eternal account that's forgiven. You've been put on a path to heaven and you say, Pastor, what now? The Bible tells us that the reason why Jesus took your sins away was so that you would be purged from dead works to serve the living God. Are you serving the living God? Let me ask another question. Are you serving Him enough? What I have found is that when a pastor asks the questions like this, are you serving the living God? What people do in the pew is they answer the question in the most based way possible. Well, yeah, I uh, helped an old lady across the street one time, so yeah, I'm serving God. 
Or yeah, I'm you know I I text my adult kids you know at least once a month. So yeah, I'm, I mean yeah, I'm I'm taking care of my family. I'm serving the living God. Or oh, you know what? I watched the nursery back in 1987. So I'm serving the living God. Let me ask you this: Can you serve Him more? You aren't saved to live a comfortable Christian lifestyle. We, we we're looking at the book of Luke on. Wednesday nights, and we made the point last week that God saved you so that you could be His disciple. And in being a disciple, He has called you to a life of ministry and a life of minimalism. What does that mean? That means that you're not uh, impressed with everything that comes along. You're not so caught up in trying to win on earth that you lose in heaven. Prepares you for service. If you're here today and Jesus has saved you, I want you to ask yourself this question. What are you giving back to Him? If you um, had your foot stuck down in um, railroad tracks, the train was bearing down on you. The train had put on its brakes, but, you know, it takes those things a long time to stop. And it's hopeless, man. I mean, you can't get your foot out. You can't get your shoe out of the, uh, foot out of the shoe. And, and, I mean, it's just a matter of time. And I see you there, and I see the train coming, and I run over, and I get your foot out, and I push you out of the way, and in pushing you out of the way, my momentum carries me in front of the train, and that thing hits me and kills me. You come to my funeral, and you are just so grateful that I have died for you. My parents come up to you, and they say, Listen, I live in the same town you do. In fact, I live just a few blocks from your house. We, we're glad our son saved your life, but we miss him dearly. Could we ask you a favor? Could you just stop by and visit us once a week? Is there anybody here that thinks that that request is over the top? They would say, hey, listen, as we age and we get older, Richard was going to take care of us. He's not there to do that anymore. Do you think you can help that process? Is there anybody here that thinks that's an unreasonable request? You would have been dead had I not given my life in this hypothetical situation for you. Christian, I did not push you out of the way of a train. But Jesus pushed you out of hell. And he suffered hell in the process. And he looks at you and he says, my blood has purged your conscience. It's washed the sins off your soul. And all I ask is that you serve me. I gave my life for you and I want you to give your life for me. I don't think that that's too much for him to ask. And I think any reasonable person would agree with that. Number five and lastly, we see here the plea of Christ's blood. The plea of Christ's blood. Look at verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 12. Turn to chapter 12. Look at verse 24. We open the sermon talking about Abel. And how that Abel's blood had a voice. And that voice was heard by the God of heaven. Look at verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus has a voice as well. And it speaks better things 
than the voice of Abel's blood. You see, we talked about how Abel's blood cried out. It said, Father God, have I died in vain? I was struck by a sinner. Shall this sinner go unpunished? I was struck by the guilty. Shall the guilty be struck too? Sinner of the blood of Jesus has a voice and it cries out greater things than Abel's blood cried out. It does not cry for you and I to be punished. Rather, it cries out for you and I to be forgiven. Jesus' blood cries out to the Father and it says, Father, Father, shall I die in vain? Father, I paid my blood for sinners. Shall not sinners be saved? I was struck for the guilty. Shall the guilty be struck too? The blood says, Oh God, I have vindicated Your law. What more do You demand? I have honored Your justice. Why should You cast the sinner into hell? Oh, divine benignity, can You take two exactions for one offense and punish those for whom Jesus suffered? Oh, justice, will You hear avenge? Oh, mercy, uh, uh, when the way is cleared, will you not run to guilty sinners? Oh, love divine, when the pathway is open for you, will you not show yourself to the rebellious and the vile? The blood, of, the blood shall not plead in vain. The blood of Jesus cries. It cries to God. It cries to God that He will atone your soul. Can I tell you something today? God's sitting there with, his, with the blood of Jesus, ready to wash the sins off your soul. There's one thing that must happen prior to that. You must, by faith, believe Jesus died for you. You must, by faith, turn from a belief in anything else and believe in Jesus. And if you will do that, He will wash away your sins. O oh, sinner... I want you at this time to close your eyes. Use the theater of your mind and imagine the Son of God as an innocent lamb hanging lifeless on the cross. I want you to look at the crimson blood flowing from His body, dripping off His toes, dripping off His elbows, falling from His fingertips and off His toes and saturating the wooden cross and flowing down to the soil below. That blood was shed for you. Here's the great news. You can look up here at me. Jesus did not stay dead. After three days, He arose He gathered together His own blood. He ascended to heaven and He entered into heaven's holy of holies. He took His own blood and sprinkled it onto the mercy seat. You see, there is no more need for priests because the great high priest, Jesus, took His own blood and He sprinkled it on the mercy seat so that you could have your sins forgiven. How about it today? Will you by faith allow Jesus to wash your garments in His own blood? Listen to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, And from Jesus Christ unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood 
shall never lose its power. Nor all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If not, will you allow His blood to cleanse you today? To those who are already saved, you have been washed for good works. Are you doing your part? Are you doing your part? Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. How about it today? You came into church filled with your sin, the unrighteousnesses of your life. And if you walk out of here with those sins still on your soul and on your record, and you die that way, you're going to go to hell. There's no reason for that. Jesus shed His blood to wash away your sins. Do not let that go. Forgotten. How many of you here today say, Pastor, there was a day in my life I put my faith in Jesus. If I were to die today, I am 100% certain I would go to heaven. If that's you, you say, my soul has been purged with the blood of Jesus. Here's my hand in testimony that that's you. You just raise your hand. You're certain that you have called on Jesus to wash away your sins. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Is there one here today or maybe more than one that would say, Pastor, I don't know that I have that moment. I love Jesus and I'm thankful He died. But I really don't remember a time that he, he died, that I asked Him to wash away my sins. You can do that today. You can do that right now, right where you're sitting. All you've got to do is, by faith, call on the name of Jesus. Ask Him to take away your sins. Ask Him to wash away your sins in His blood. He stands there ready and waiting to do it. He is your friend that laid down His life for you. Will you let His death be in vain? Don't let that happen. By your own free will, choose for that to happen. Where you're sitting, right there, if you've never asked Jesus to wash away your sins, can I encourage you to pray a prayer after me? Now, before I pray this prayer, let me just tell you, there's nothing magical about my prayer. There's no prayer that will save you, but there is faith that will save you. Will you call out to God and ask Him to take away your sins? Right where you're seated, right under your breath, will you just pray this prayer? Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. and I plead guilty because of my sin. I understand that the penalty for my sin is death and hell. Will you take your blood that you shed? Will you wash away my sins? Give me a home in heaven. In Jesus' name. With your heads bowed and eyes still closed, you prayed that prayer for the first time and you meant it with all your heart. Would you, could I rejoice with you on that? Would you just raise your hand? I can see your hand that you prayed that prayer. Amen. Amen. I see two hands. I see a third hand. I see a fourth hand. Are there others? Somebody here that prayed and asked Jesus to take away their sins. 
How many here today say, Pastor, I see that Jesus saved me for good works, but I'll be honest, I'm not doing enough. Not doing enough. Yeah, you need to serve your family, and you need to be a good citizen, and you need to treat your, your fellow man with respect and love, but God has called you to a service here at this church. Are you doing that? How many here today say, Pastor, pray for me? I can see that, yes, I've been saved, but no, I'm not doing enough. Pray for me. Here's my hand. How many here today say, Pastor Lejeune, I am carrying a very heavy burden in my life right now. And I just need to know that my pastor's praying for me. That you just slip up your hand. Carrying a very heavy burden, going through a very difficult time. I see your hands. God knows beyond your hand what's in your heart. He knows your hurt. Lord, I do ask today that you'd help those who are going through a difficult trial, difficult problem, carrying a heavy burden emotionally, spiritually, physically. Would you help them, Lord? Would you either calm the storms in their life or rather calm them and grow them through those storms? God, we're thankful for those that put your faith, their faith in you today. May they seek to grow by that decision. May they, may they begin this new life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. There are several here today that are either going to potentially join our church and get baptized. If that's you, would you at this time make your way forward? Our altar's open. We would encourage you to come and kneel and pray and talk to the Lord. Ask Him to help you to live a life that's worthy of Him.